So I'm going to start off by reading a, a large passage of scripture. You can move on with me. Isaiah chapter 53. Uh, we'll start in verse 1. Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet did we, um, uh, we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. Who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was stricken. And he made him his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin... He shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the travail of the soul and shall be satisfied by his knowledge. Shall my righteous servant justify many for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he hath poured out his soul unto death and he was numbered with the transgressors. And he bare the sins of many and made intercessions for the transgressors. We've been talking a lot. I've got, we've got in, in, uh, this is probably a horrible thing to quote, but in the words of the great theologian, we have a long way to go and a short time to get there. And, and so I'm, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna cut kind of as I go this homily and kind of by way of introduction, just ignore what I have and just say that what we've been talking about at man camp all week, uh, just to bring you ladies in on it, is we've been talking about the fact that we need to fall in love with a man. Now I know two preachers dressed in matching outfits probably shouldn't be talking about falling in love with a man. You know, it sounds a little odd. I get it. But there is only one context in which I can say without a compromise to my masculinity that I need to fall in love with a man and that man is the man Christ Jesus. And we can't fall in love with the man until we get to know the man and that's what I want to ask you this morning. Do you know this man? Do you actually know this man? And how well do you know him? And what could it possibly benefit you for getting to know him better, no matter at what state you are in your knowledge of him? That's the question. And it is just a great comfort to be able to preach a sermon like this because there are, there are very few congregations, I believe, that would even be able to process or handle or even accept or maybe even appreciate some of the things I'm about to say today, because I believe in this Laodicean age that it would be it would be very difficult, it would be very hard for, for for hearers in this day and age to hear a message like this. So you know, buckle up, and we'll get through this together. We only have two points. I want you to understand two things that maybe you've never considered, or maybe you have never considered fully, that will help you get to know this man better. And I want you to understand, first of all, and this is going to sound weird, okay, but I want you to understand the weakness of the man Christ Jesus. Look at verse 2. For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant 
and as a root out of a dry ground. When God made his entrance into this world, the redeemed, doomed, damned, and hopeless man, he didn't come in any way that could have been or would have been anticipated or expected before it happened. He came out of the womb of a scared teenage virgin from a town literally smaller than this church parking lot, by the way, covered in amniotic fluid, blood, and goo, crying and struggling for breath in a cave filled with the stench of animal refuse. Who are we talking about? We're talking about the eternal, almighty, sovereign dread of time, space, and matter. Who is alone, self-sufficient, and self-sustaining. And who spake all matter into existence and order. Who came to this world as a helpless infant in one of the most pathetic scenes one could imagine. He came as 100% man, quivering and crying and hungry and confused and laid in a feeding trough after having been wrapped in clothes used for mummification in what could only be understood as an eerie foreview of the passion, I suppose. Do you know how God was born as a man and grew into adulthood? God, now. Do you know how God was born as a man and grew into adulthood? As a tender plant, as a root out of a dry ground. When a plant grows out of dry ground, you can be sure it's not going to grow very strong. It's not going to be one of the bigger plants. It's going to constantly struggle and and strain for some water and sunlight and nourishment. Actually fighting for its very existence, its entire existence. Now let me tell you why I go through all of that. Because you need to understand the weakness of Jesus Christ and his humanity. Because you need to be convinced. You need to stand in awe that Christ willingly humbled himself though being very God, to take on such frailty as the human condition and engraft us who were once wild and dead branches into the true and living vine. And he did that in a way so that men could understand what it's like to be a man under such conditions and that women could understand the same. He hath, listen now, he hath no form nor comeliness And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Now that's King James E's, if you will, for the acknowledgement that even as frail as man is, at his best, especially in comparison to God, Jesus was a particularly weak and even unattractive specimen of Adam's race. The point the author is making is that Whomever the author Isaiah is speaking of, I only say whomever because it is my contention that he hadn't a complete idea of precisely whom he was talking about, nor could he have. See for reference the mystery of godliness. There is no reckoning in the flesh why anyone would have been drawn to him or or, or to follow him. This is not the Hollywood Jesus. You know, the guy with the perfect teeth and and, 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 and the perfect skin and the long flowing, you know, curled hair that was done in some makeup room in some, you know, booth or some trailer on a set before he walks onto stage with his muscular physique. And J- Jesus wasn't sexy. 
He was ugly. He was unattractive. And there was no physical reason that men should desire to be with him and to follow him. There was no reason that people would consider him attractive. From the record of Scripture, we know that during the 33 and a half year ministry of Jesus Christ, he suffered hunger and thirst and loneliness and betrayal and heartbreak and physical and emotional exhaustion, the entire gambit of possible temptations, sighing, crying, bleeding, weeping, thirsting, choking, gasping, wincing, hungering, and fearing. No, no, Brother Bartlett, he didn't need any perfect love cast out fear. He didn't fear. Who in the days of his flesh... Hebrews 5, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death and was heard in that he feared. He was tempted in all points, like as you are, yet without sin. Jesus was born in weakness. He died in weakness and he experienced weakness every day of his life. who being in the form of God, Philippians 2, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. Say, well, all the Bibles are the same. You ought to check out Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8 in the other Bibles. I'm going to go ahead and contend that there's quite a difference between thought it not robbery to be equal with God and thought that equality with God was not something to be grasped. Here's clue number one. You have a false Bible. It says that Jesus did not consider himself deity in the days of his flesh. That would be clue number one. Clue number two, that they don't all say the same thing, is that they say different things. And two things that are different aren't the same. That would be clue number two. How do you know they're not the same? Well, they're spelled with different words. Well, how do you know they're spelled with different words? Because they use different letters and they make different sounds. See, these are all clues. In fact, brothers and sisters, this was true to the extent that Isaiah opens the passage describing the coming Messiah with such bewilderment with what was being revealed to him as to feel compelled to actually interject an interrogation into the record to it. Lord, who shall believe our report? You're supposed to be the hero of Israel. You're supposed to be the champion of the universe. You're supposed to be coming robed in the sun. Uh, you know, no offense, but like, you know, who's going to believe this and stuff? That's what he asks. God. Who will even be able to recognize him as the Messiah when he does come, if he comes like this? And and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? What's he asking? Do you know to a Jew what, 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 what the arm of the Lord represented? It represented power. How are we going to demonstrate your power in the frail body of human flesh? Not even a good example of that. Isaiah couldn't see his strength. Isaiah needed to get to know him better. Because in understanding his weakness, you know what you can see? It's then and only then that you can see his strength. 
Isaiah couldn't see his strength because his strength was hidden in the one place that no one was looking, which is the reason that Israel missed him then, and it's the reason that the world still misses him today. His strength, a real man's strength, is what's on the inside of him. Manifested in his matchless power of humility as a lamb, then... But it will be manifested outwardly at the second coming when he comes as a lion and he roars out of Zion. And this is why you have to see the whole picture. Isaiah wants the hearer to see the entire prophetic portrait God asked him to paint. So he not only points out his weakness, but look at verse 7. He was oppressed. And was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. He didn't open his mouth the first time. He was beaten and he was mocked. And he was made an object of ridicule. He didn't even open his mouth. He's going to open his mouth the second time. And you know what's going to come out of that mouth? A sharp two-edged sword. And you know what that thing's going to do? Well, let's just say this. If those Roman soldiers could have seen what could have come out of that mouth if he would have opened it, I submit to you that they wouldn't have been smacking him around and spitting on him. But you see, he was able to contain his wrath. Because that's what a man does. And this is why we need to see point number two. The strength of the man, Jesus Christ. You see, there's different ways to size up a man. We talked about, uh, we talked a little bit about this during man camp. There's different ways to size up a man. I mean, you can't all be buff and, 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 and tan and muscular and intimidating. Not everybody can be a Brandon Blackford. It doesn't work like that. Some people judge a man's character and toughness by what he can dish out. I don't. Why? Because I played basketball. Basketball, isn't that kind of a non-contact sport? Yes, it is. It's one of the reasons that I chose it. So what does that have to do with anything? I wasn't a great basketball player. I was a great con artist. If you're a really good con artist, you can con your way onto a basketball team. And I'm going to tell you how to do it, okay? During tryouts, you match up with other people and you do drills. So you do one-on-one dribbling drills and defensive drills, and you have all these drills. And half the drills about quickness and agility and, 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 and ball handling and shooting and, and all of that, you do that against some other person. So during tryouts, you pair up with a dork. Why? Well, because the coach thinks you're Pete Maravich. And then you whittle it down and whittle it down, and he hasn't figured out what you've done until the final couple of cuts. And, I mean, you've got a pretty good chance of making that team. Now, that's how you make a basketball team. Right? Because it's all relative. Anyone can act tough or look like a good athlete or appear intelligent or good-looking or educated or bully someone or embarrass them. Listen. I say anyone can dish it out when they have an advantage 
when they are comparing themselves to dorkier, dumber, weaker, uglier people. No, folks, the real measure of a man has nothing at all to do with what he can dish out, as it turns out. The measure of a man is what he can take. The real measure of a man is what it takes to stop him. The test of a man's character is what it takes to stop him, Dr. Bob Jones Sr. Reckoned thusly, even with exclusive respect to his humanity, there was never a man so manly as the man Christ Jesus. Jesus could be reviled and revile not again. Can you do that? You man enough to do that? Some of you men, you think you're a man? You think you're, you think you're this much of a man? Can you be reviled and revile not again? You don't know a man like this. You don't know a man like this, and until you meet this man, you've never met a real man. You need to get to know this man, because this is a man. Jesus could be lied about and not deal in lies. Jesus could be betrayed and still offer friendship. You man enough to do that? You that big of a man? You're not that big of a man. Jesus could be smitten on the face, swallow his own blood, and turn the other cheek. You man enough to do that? I don't think you are. I'm questioning your manhood. Well, you're questioning my man. I'm questioning my man. I'll take you right outside. Okay, you see what I'm saying? So I reviled you. Can you revile not again? See, you didn't even pass the first test, Smoothie. Why don't you chill? Jesus could be tied to a post and beaten by cords until his rib cage was exposed. And if the psalmist is to be believed, have his entrails dangling from out his sides and back and still turn his back to the smiters. Can you do that? You man enough to do that? Jesus could be spit upon and beaten by every soldier in a company of a Roman army for an entire evening. Blind him. And each Roman soldier, a Roman soldier, mind you, take his turn one at a time, smacking him as hard as he could, and then and then saying, you want to be anointed? You think you're the anointed king? Here's some anointing. Each one for an entire evening. That's before he was beaten. You man enough to do that? You think you're a man? You're not this kind of man. You don't know a man like this. You've never met a man like this. Again, Hollywood gets it wrong. Because the other version of Hollywood Jesus is that he's a wimp, that he's effeminate. Make no mistake about it. Jesus Christ was no wimp. Jesus Christ was no reed shaken in the wind. He was no man clothed in soft raiment. Jesus Christ is the adopted son of a carpenter. He's a fisherman. You know what I, I think Jesus Christ is like as I read the Gospels? Jesus Christ, now hopefully I'm not offending anybody in here. But Jesus Christ, how many of you, raise your hand if you know any roofers. Know any roofers? Okay. Roofers, they're off. I don't care who you are, where you are. There's something about a roofer. They're not normal people. They're their own demographic of weird. And you better not mess with a roofer. You mess with a roofer. So you mess with a drywaller, you might get into a fight. You mess with a roofer, they may never see your body again. 
Those, those roofing crews, you better, you better not mess with a roofing crew. Those guys, what they do before they even arrive to work might get them thrown in jail for a couple of months. You don't mess with roofers. Why? They're lean. They're skinny. They're strong. They're scary strong. They can fight. They can bite. They'll kick. A roofer will mess you up, friend. And Jesus Christ was kind of like that. He cleansed the temple twice. He beat the ways and means out of people. He turning over tables and causing a ruckus. It's like when you fire a roofer from a roofing crew, that's the reaction that Jesus had in the temple. His skin is bronze and leathery from exposure to the sun. He's tough. He's ugly, but he's tough. Where I come from, we would have said this about Jesus. He's not sexy, but he has teeth. And he's taking beats and strikes and spit from Roman soldiers. You know why he's doing it? Because he's getting ready to die for the very people that are doing that to him at the moment. And once again, just like his birth, he finds himself covered in fluids and blood and goo. Jesus fasted for 40 days. Fasted for 40 Oh, I fasted for 40 days. Yeah, I know. While you had, you know, juice for sugar and milk for fat. And you ate the cookies when the wife stepped out of the room. I know about your fast, homeboy. I'm a man. I know how men diet. Okay, they're liars. Women, if your husband is dieting with you and he's not physically in the room with you, he's eating. Just like so you know. <laughs> I, got, I have men telling me right now, we're going to find out how tough you are outside in the parking lot. You're exposing our game. Jesus Christ fasted for 40 days. You think you're a man enough to do that? You give that a whirl sometime, homeboy. These evangelical churches, we're going to proclaim a fast. We're going to not eat Oreos for two days. All right. Just like Jesus did. Yeah, yeah. Jesus had physical and emotional strength. Jesus had moral strength. Look at verse 11. He shall see the travail of his soul and he shall be satisfied by his knowledge. Shall my righteous servant justify many for he shall bear their iniquities. For 33 and a half years, Jesus walked this planet and at every stage of maturity completely fulfilled the father's plan for his life without failing in thought, deed or effort in the slightest degree, all while being tempted in all points like as we are yet without sin. John chapter 14 and verse 30. Hereafter I will not talk much, uh, talk much with you. For the prince of this world cometh and what? 
33 and a half years, here comes Satan himself. And he's going to try and sift my life as wheat. Prince of this world cometh and hath nothing in me. Can you say that? That's 33 and a half years, friend. Can you say that about the last 33 and a half days? Can that be said of you in the last 33 and a half minutes? You think you're a man? This is the man you get to need to you need to get to know. This is the man that you need to be. This this is the man. You ain't the man, bro. This is the man. Listen, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you don't know a man like this. And if you're saved, you don't know a man like this other than this. You know, it's a funny thing, I I suppose that his strength would be of considerable less interest to me if he hadn't have been so weak in a weird way. Because of the two considered together, I suppose that in my age, I'm finally seeing the, the, the folly of hero worship. Steve Prefontaine is not my hero. He used to be. Steve Eiserman is not my hero. He used to be. Now, if Steve Eiserman walked into this room, I might squeal like a girl and ask for an autograph. But that doesn't mean that he's my hero. It just means that I'm not much of a man. Pete Pete Maravich is not my hero. He used to be. Peter S. Ruckman is not my hero. Frank Pardue is not my hero. Mark Trotter is not my hero. Unlike Willie Nelson, my heroes have not always been cowboys. They have been preachers. It's because of the great preachers that I've known that I have such contempt for what a bad preacher really is. And no, not even... I forgot I had written this. And no, not even my dear old dad, Dr. Bill Bartlett, is my hero. Nor do I either desire or deserve to be the hero of my children or anyone else. I wish I could be heroic. I wish I was admirable. I do. But I'm not. And this is not feigned humility, brothers and sisters. It's just not true of me. Too many sin struggles. Too many weird social quirks. Too many dramas. Too many defects. Too many vanities and affectations. 
You know, Jesus had problems. Jesus had weaknesses. Jesus had temptations. Jesus had desires. Jesus had flesh. Just like I do. But Jesus never failed. That's the difference. He never flinched. Jesus never preached anything he didn't live. Jesus never taught anything false. Jesus never did right openly to turn around and sin secretly. He never let his left hand know what his right hand was doing. He wasn't good on some days and on other days would take a break from doing good. He never allowed himself to be a victim or excused himself from his responsibilities. He never got weary in well-doing. You know who is like all of that? Brett Bartlett is like all of that. Jesus Christ, he's not that way. Perchance this context alone excuses my employment of the third person, a practice I almost always shun. But do you know why I am like that? I'll tell you why I'm like that, and this is the truth. And I hope everybody understands this about me. I'm a dirty, rotten, hypocritical, selfish, stinking sinner. That's why. That's why I'm like that. And so is everyone else that has ever lived except the weak and wonderful, the strong and splendid, the man, Christ Jesus. Behold, what manner of man is this? John chapter 1, verse 43, The day following, Jesus would go forth into Galilee and findeth Philip and saith unto him, Follow me. Now Philip was of Bethesda, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip findeth Nathanael and saith unto him, We have found him, of whom Moses and the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said unto him, Can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? What does Philip say? Well, come and see. I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, I have found him. I have found the man. I have found the ultimate example of manhood. Oh, where? I found him in the King James Bible. Come and see. Come and see. Philip says, hey, Nathaniel, guess what? We found the hero of Israel. You're not going to believe this, but it's a man. Yeah, like for real. It's like James, like, you know, perfect brother that never gets in trouble you know as it turns out well he's God you know when like like when the when the vase breaks in the entryway and the parents don't even have to ask who did it who who was that Jane not me well it wasn't Jesus I mean it's kind of a rough you gotta you got to feel bad. You got to feel bad for old James. Eh, that's just not, I mean, you talk about an awful brother. Jesus is a great God. He's a horrible big brother. Horrible. Well, yeah. <laughs> you know, kidding. I will bless the Lord at all times. He 
His praise shall continually be in my mouth, Psalm 34. My soul shall make her boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear thereof and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he heard me and delivered me from all thy fears. They looked unto him and were lightened. Their faces were not ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encampeth round about them that fear him and delivereth them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that trusteth in him. Taste and see. Well, I, 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 don't, I, I, don't, I don't get this whole Christian thing. I don't get this way to be the ultimate man is some guy that just gets beat up and he weeps over other people and he and, he, and he's always I, I don't I don't get it. Well, listen, don't, you, you, what have you never read like Dr. Seuss? Like, come on, you got a green eggs and ham it every now and then, right? Like, don't knock it till you try it. Come and see. I never knew that I liked peas with blue cheese dressing. That sounded disgusting to me. So I tried it. It was gross, but I learned to like it. I mean, I'm saying I tried it is all. Okay, the analogy breaks down after the enjoyment. But I learned to like it. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And when you see Him revealed in Isaiah 53, when you see Him revealed in Scripture, when you see His weakness and His strength, do you know what you'll find? Maybe not just in His weakness, and perhaps, and perhaps not just in his strength, but when you see him the way Isaiah saw him, in his weakness and his strength, you'll find his beauty and his blessedness practically. I thought it said he had no beauty. No, it didn't say that. It says that the beauty that he lacked was connected to his quote-unquote form and comeliness, that's the physical, that's on the outside. The beauty of Jesus Christ was the priceless treasure, the hidden and resplendent man in the inside. Do you know what was on the inside of Jesus Christ? Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, For I would that ye knew what great conflict I have for you and for them at... Okay, so get your ears on. If you find yourself in Laodicea, I hear something you might need to take home to the bank. For as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts might be comforted, being knit together in love, and unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In the man, Christ Jesus. Now I go through all that this morning because there's no point in you knowing part of the story. You need to have it fully revealed to you who is actually hanging on this tree. That's what Isaiah is doing. He's revealing the actual person of Jesus Christ. The actual, the historical, the biblical, the authentic person of Jesus Christ is not what you see on the outside, nor is the drama of the passion and the cup of his suffering just the physical torments and details of his execution, though they be terrible. Isaiah knows 
He can't get you to see the beauty of what's on the inside without juxtaposing it with what was on the outside. It's not enough to see a persecuted Jew or a do-gooder or a social revolutionary hanging and bleeding and dying on a cross. You have to see what was on the inside because if you don't see that on the cross, then you won't see all that the cross did for you. Say, well, I would die for other people. Maybe you would, maybe you wouldn't. Would you die for your enemies? Yeah, I think I would. Would you die for the whole world? Yeah, I think I would. Okay, even if that were true, guess what? Who cares? That's just one sinner dying for another. Your death wouldn't amount to a hill of frostbitten beans. Couldn't give two rips about your sacrifice for me. You're not any better than I am. But he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Why? We might be made the righteousness of God in him. And that's why when you see the man on the cross in his weakness and his strength, then it matters to you, verse 4, that he took your griefs and your sorrows. You ever lose a loved one? You ever have your kids fail morally? You ever have to explain to your kids why you failed morally? You ever have a man or a woman break your heart? You ever have your best friend betray you with a kiss? Yea, mine own familiar friend in whom I trusted, which did eat my bread, hath lifted up his hand against me. You don't... Well, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm, I'm done with church, bunch of hypocrites. You're done with church? You're not done with church. That's a cop-out. I'll tell you who you're done with. You're done with Jesus Christ. You abandon the man when the man wouldn't abandon you. You know what your problem is? Your problem is you're not a man. You're a stinking coward. Blame your lack of love on Jesus on other people's lack of love on Jesus. And you think that their problem is hypocrisy? Tell me, sir, how do you shave in the morning without cutting your own neck? You ever been taken advantage of and helpless to stop it? You ever experienced loneliness and rejection? You know, verses 3 and 8. Despised, rejected of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Taken from prison and judgment, who shall declare his generation? He was cut off out of the land of the living. You ever experienced physical disappointments? You ever wish you had a different body? I didn't choose this body. All I can do is make jokes about how awesome it is. The reason it's a joke is because we all know the truth. Okay? I get it. I'm the Pillsbury Doughboy. With a big forehead. I mean, at least has he has a normal proportioned head. 
I mean, he got off better than I did. I didn't choose my forehead. I'd have chosen a different forehead. I didn't choose these legs. I look like a baby giraffe. You pasty white legs. You can't even tell where the calf starts and ends. It just looks like a shin covered in polka dot skin with red Brillo pad. I never wear shorts. Not because I'm a fundy. I don't want anyone to see my legs. I don't let my wife see my legs. I go to bed in jeans. I love the winter. The the more layers of clothing I add, the better I look. I get it. I didn't choose this body. You know what? Jesus Christ didn't choose his body. A body thou hast prepared me, and sacrifice and offerings I thou wouldest not. In the volume of the book it is written of me, I go to do thy will. It is God's will that you perform the tasks of righteousness on this planet like a man with your example of Jesus Christ as a man, with whatever frailties and limitations that you were given in your human flesh. And at the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you will be able to stand in the full measure and stature of his glorified body, if you can believe it. If you accept the man bleeding and dying for you, taking your griefs and sorrows, and because he dealt with it, he can deal with it for you. He took your sin... Verse 5 and 12, he was wounded for our transgressions. He took your sin, and not just your sin, but everybody else's sin. I've often thought that if I had to endure my sin and one other sinful man's sin, if you could add to my sinful life one other sinful man's sin, that the Lord would have to destroy me for the wickedness. Jesus Christ didn't just take your sin. If you can imagine it, he became everyone's sin at once to the point that the Father had to turn away. That's what he took. You want to talk about the strong arm of the Lord? Well, where? how shall we believe our report? Where? How is the strong arm of the Lord revealed? Here's how it's revealed. He took your sin and your sorrow and your grief and your loneliness and your rejection. He took it all up to the cross. And then he took it and he deposited your sin in hell. And then he applied the blood of the mercy seat in heaven. And then he converged back in his human body. And then he rose from the dead and he conquered sin and he conquered hell and he conquered the world. He conquered your grief. He conquered your depression. He conquered your addiction. He took it and can take it still. Because he's the man. You're not the man. You got to give it to the man. Are you man enough to give it to the man? That's what the cup is all about. That's the fear of death that he endured. That's why God the Father had to forsake his own. Couldn't even look at him. And every time we sin, we don't esteem it. We are saved by the cross and even saved people in Laodicea. They don't esteem it. We talk about the wickedness of Judas's betrayal and the kiss of the close friendship. Hey, listen, man. If you're saved, you tell me who's closer. A man's friend or a man's bride. You tell me who the betrayer is. 
Who would you rather have cheat on you? Your best friend or your bride? You use your mouth to worship Jesus all the time. What do you do with it when you're not kissing him? You want me to preach the truth here, brothers and sisters? Every last one of us will betray him before you meet back here together next week. And that's, that's why I don't have heroes. And neither should you. That's why I've decided to let God be true and every man a liar. Especially this liar up here flapping his jaws right now. He took the chastisement of your peace. He took your salvation, verse 10. The fruit of the death of Jesus Christ is the resurrection. But not just the resurrection of Jesus, but look at it. He made his soul an offering for sin, verse 10. And then he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. He shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous servant justify many. And to them he will divide his inheritance among them. It's not just the resurrection of Jesus but the many souls who will be saved because of the power of his death, burial, and resurrection, because of the payment Jesus made on your behalf, because the Father acknowledged the travail of the soul of his dear Son as the satisfaction of the payment demanded by the transgression of the law on your behalf, when you come into the presence of the Father, he will see the covering of the righteousness of his Son that propitiation that makes you his seed and you shall also be declared as righteous as Jesus Christ just as if I'd never sinned. Arise, dear soul, arise. Shake off thy guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice on our behalf appears. The Spirit doesn't answer to your religion. The Spirit doesn't answer to your works. The Spirit doesn't answer to your conscience. The Spirit doesn't answer to your past or to your present or to your standards. Friend, the Spirit answers to the blood and tells me, I am born of God. Because the blood makes you safe and the Word makes you sure. And when Jesus went to the cross, He went alone and He went to die that He might bring forth much fruit. And to the jeering onlookers in Jerusalem that day, Who sees as man seeth. Who only saw the outward appearance. It looked like just another Jewish criminal. Pathetically stumbling to his Roman execution. But on the inside of that beaten and emaciated carpenter from Nazareth. Was hidden the mystery of God. And of the Father. And of Christ. And in whom were hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. 
He carried our sin and our chastisement and our peace. He carried our very salvation and the seed of God-likeness which was buried in the earth and in three days sprouted to the harvest of souls for the church age. He did all of this, brothers and sisters. He did all of this. He did all of this for his enemies. Today, Isaiah 53 revealed the weakness and therefore necessarily the strength of this man that you desperately need to get to know. The strength to humble himself, to become a man, to drink of the cup of suffering, to face death and hell alone and emerge victorious as the captain of our salvation. Isaiah 53 does not end with a naked Jew covered in fluids, blood, and goo hanging on a tree. It ends with the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the seed that he sowed for the resurrection of souls. Because Jesus Christ is coming back. You know what he's coming back for, brothers and sisters? He's coming back for a kingdom. The first time he came, do you know what this world saw? It saw what he could take. Do you know what it's going to see? It's going to see when he returns at long last what he can dish out. And when he conquers, he will divide the spoil with those who are his. But if you reject the revelation of the arm of the Lord in Isaiah 53 and all that it carried to the cross for you, then it won't be Isaiah 53 that you'll get. It won't be the meek and lowly Galilean. It won't be the friend of sinners. It won't be an ugly, weather-worn carpenter and net fisherman beaten beyond recognition. It will be the Jesus of Isaiah 54. It will be a day of vengeance. It will be the Jesus of Isaiah 13. Howl ye, for the day of destruction is at hand. If you reject the message of Isaiah 53, you'll get an eternity of hellfire. Before that, you may very well indeed get seven seals and seven trumpets and seven vials of wrath poured out upon the inhabitants of the earth to make way for Jesus on a white horse and many crowns and a name written on his thigh who maketh the streams pitch and fire consuming from his eyes and a sharp two-edged sword proceeding from his mouth arrayed in a vesture dipped in blood but not his own, not this time. Rather, That blood will be the blood of all those who knew not God and obeyed not the gospel of Jesus Christ. Those who heard the message of his weakness and his strength, who heard the good news of all that he carried to the cross on their behalf, and still, and still, and still esteemed him. On that day, brothers and sisters, on that day, it will be the world's turn to be covered in fluids, blood, And do. With nowhere to run to, baby. And nowhere to hide. So I'm asking you one last time. Do you know this man? 